to go by and um, how would you want yourself kind of described um, on the like linear notes? I would just like to go by Dominique. I think that's fine. And for ways to describe me, I guess a trans Marxist from Wyoming. I don't know, never really thought about introductions. So I guess, yeah, we can get started uh, and just whatever you feel inspired to say, I think. And if there's stuff that doesn't, that isn't really encapsulated in any of my questions, then you again should feel free to just riff the way that you, the, the way that you want. So one of the things that I said, or that kind of the first thing that I said when I was interviewing Kelly was that it, and, and I don't want to necessarily turn this into a discussion about so-called anti-trans Marxists, anti-trans tanky, you know, people, yeah. you know, the kind I'm talking about. We, we don't have to talk about them. We can if you want. Um, but it strikes me as so incongruous to have that kind of belief because it seems to me that Marxism is about taking control of our material destiny and that that includes taking control of our biological destiny and sort of democratizing and empowering us uh, to uh, become who we are and become who we want to be. And so I guess that was sort of the way that I wanted to frame the beginning of, of the discussion was uh, it feels to me like, it, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me uh, that I know so many trans folk in the communist movement because of those reasons. And I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but that's sort of my invitation for you to kind of you know, tell me, kind of give me an overview of, of what that, that combination of philosophies means to you. Yeah, uh, I could easily get into that. Um, so I'll start off with like what, what my transness and what being a Marxist means to me. And then I'll kind of dive into my takes on where anti-queerness comes in to the Marxist movement um, because that is a bit of a residue of movements from the 20th century. Right. So coming into my transness was a bit of a weird understanding for me because I, because for a while I didn't really understand why I never felt comfortable with the body I was given and like I always felt this disconnect and always 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 thought about being um a woman and wanting to be a woman and it would occupy my mind all the time and then I came across and one of my friends came out as trans and I uh came out about a week later um as trans because that term sounded like I aim sounded like something um that fit and the more I kind of looked into it the more I realized no there is like an actual real 
backing to this, like a real scientific way to understand being trans and that it's not just a mental thing. It actually is just a facet of being a human being. And that's when I started looking into where um, the idea of if you're born male, then you are a male. If you're born female, you're born a female kind of comes in and that has its roots in early growth of capitalism in Europe and late feudalism where the revolutionary forces um, at that time were definitely the capitalists, but through that came violence amongst the commons, um, the dispossession of women and the, and, and the division of women's labor and the economizing of the family unit, which we now know today as the nuclear family. And this thinking kind of grew and grew into kind of what felt like needed to be a enforced standard to perpetuate both the working class and private property lineage. So come the times of colonialism, any expressions of family units outside of the nuclear family was deemed as satanic, evil, and not right, which indigenous cultures all over the world, even like some European cultures even had these, but due to the influence of the church, that kind of provided a political platform mm-hmm. to, enfor- to enforce this nuclear family structure as like the one and only way of understanding. And so that led to the justification of erasing and pushing towards extinction any other kinds of family structures and then that boils down in itself each person within those family structures has to fulfill the specific role um so that's when um all in all around the world during colonialism at least the places that were affected any family structures where and where the man wasn't the primary lead of the house or head of the house or whatever it may be. If there was, uh, if it was more kind of matriarchal or anything like that, it was deemed as evil. And then that boiled down to enforcing the idea of men need to be men and women need to be women. And that has just sparked violence throughout centuries to kind of put us in the position that we are now to where it's 
almost unfathomable to some people to be anything other than what has seemed quote unquote natural because of global hegemony that was kind of beaten into and violently uh, enforced throughout the world. And so early on socialist states were kind of struggling with this because the information on this wasn't as widely understood as it is now except in Germany because uh, early 1900s mm-hmm. Germany was one of the leading places that had kind of leading the understanding of sexuality, gender, and all related kind of spheres of that. And then the Nazis came and started. Right. No, I mean, I was, I was going to say I had just read about this. And so I was very, it was good to hear the way that you put it. Um, One of the other components of that was that the, uh, those theories and that in the sort of psychosexual analysis community immediately found allies among the German uh, socialists, the internationalists and the communists. And it was the liberals, you know, they were kind of on the fence, uh, surprisingly enough, um, about uh, protecting the rights of sexual minorities, including transgender people. Uh, But due to pressure from the right, uh, the liberals took all demands for sexual liberation out of their political platform. And so it was left to the socialists and communists to stand with sexual minorities. Uh, And because they stood with them, there were people were able to carve out somewhat of a, a safer existence than they would have normally. But as you say, then obviously the fascists came into power and all of that went away, all of the psychoanalysts, all of the sexual liberation theorists and communists and socialists had to flee or were killed. Uh, But I think that it's interesting that where that allyship developed so early on um, and also that it took so long for a lot of genuinely socialist states uh, or aspiring socialist states to get it together on uh, sexuality. Absolutely. And part of what kind of led to the homophobia of socialist states such as the Soviet Union was remnants of thought that was brought with it from uh, the Prussian Empire. During the Prussian Empire, homosexuals were some of the most, I'm not going to say the most prosecuted of the Prussian Empire. I believe that may have been um, uh, Jewish people, but alongside them were homosexuals and any kind of just gender non-conforming expressions that was a really big 
group that the Prussian Empire was um, also admitting to uh, pogroms, except the bourgeois um, homosexuals and um, trans people or gender non-conforming people. And this is where the socialists started building solidarity with queer people. It like started with um, German socialists and then the fight kind of persisted in Germany, but in Russia, it was a different story. And Russia in the Soviet Union taking a anti-homosexual stance not long after legalizing homosexuality and gay marriage after the death of Lenin. Um, I believe it was after the death of Lenin, but that then came the idea from the Soviet Union that homosexuality was an expression of uh, bourgeois decadence. And other communist parties around the world started adopting the same line because throughout the 20th century, most communist parties were trying to adhere to at least a similar line. And this thinking kind of that this thinking of homosexuality as an expression of bourgeois decadence kind of had a lasting effect even well after the death of Stalin. It was a big issue in um, Cuba. After the revolution, there were organizations throughout the new left, even back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, who were also espousing this exact same line that homosexuals are inherently counter-revolutionary, are just people expressing themselves in a bourgeois way, meanwhile not taking into account that queer people have faced exclusion from the workforce pretty intensely for decades and decades and decades uh, were forced into houselessness and into sex work a lot and took on a pretty heavily lumpen role. And part of that even still has vestiges today, like... Trans, uh, trans people are not guaranteed employment anywhere. Trans people still make up a large, a large portion of trans people are sex workers or houseless, most likely both. And the anti-trans takes of Marxists all comes from this reactionary take. A more moralist approach was taken rather than a materialist approach towards the the queer question. How would you characterize uh, the comfort with which um, trans comrades uh, navigate the communist and socialist political landscape today? 
it's kind of getting better than what it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago. How I see it now is there's starting to be a trend to bring a more materialist and working class approach to understanding trans liberation and understanding what exactly transness is as just an umbrella for gender in general and currently it's it's a bit of a like questionable topic for a lot of trans people because of the queerphobic history of the communist movements and um a part of this uneasiness stems also from the rise of postmodernism in the 90s. A lot of queer theory was built on postmodernism. Once it started regaining relevance, um, especially with thinkers like Michel Foucault. And what that did was allow for a deep dive into understanding all the different identities that can fall under trans, but it does so in a idealist way that boils each identity down to a point where there's no context around it and it's just that one singular thing. So then that brings overlapping identities into a halt and breaks them apart causing divisions such as trans people who are against non-binary people or arguments over whether neo-pronouns are legitimate or not. The role of race when it comes to gender identities, indigenous gender identities from different cultures around the world, it just kind of breaks all these up into their own little ideas separated from context of each other and context outwardly, if that makes sense. That makes tons of sense. It also is a good segue into something that I definitely want to ask you about and definitely want to hear more about, and that is the the role of indigenous thought and um, anti-colonialism in this uh, conversation. I think a lot of people, a lot of uh, white folks are not really in tune with the history of indigenous treatment of gender um, and the, the very rich approaches that are there. Uh, and I think that this also has a role to play in thinking about the importance of anti-colonialism in the anti-capitalist struggle as well. And I know that you have thought about those things and studied those things. Yeah. Um, so in order to fully like decolonize 
all vestiges of colonial violence, which is also capitalist violence, needs to be rooted out. And so that means the cis hetero patriarchal superstructure of the capitalist system needs to be overthrown because without eliminating the these reactionary trends, then those methods of violence will still be continued and be replicated within a quote-unquote decolonized civilization. And indigenous cultures have before contact had allowed people to find their gender expression on their own. And that kind of helps with where their labor and labor power would lead them in life. And family units were more community-based, so it kind of takes the uh, gendered violence out of gendered violence and hierarchy out of the family unit and child upbringing as well. A lot of people are not aware, though, of that, uh, you know, folks who who have not studied indigenous traditions or uh, been brought up in them are not really aware that there's a great diversity of thought and much to consider in, in various indigenous views, worldviews concerning gender. Absolutely. And the way to combat this, I think, has to be a further investigation into how colonial um, standards of gender, beauty, family structures, and relations to labor, how all of these express themselves in overt ways and in subtle ways. And in understanding that, we would have a clear picture as to what to specifically target. And then from there, there needs to be building on how to change, change the thinking of change the thinking on how these relationships can be made anew in a more egalitarian way that doesn't aim that doesn't replicate any kind of dominance or violence and how to like look towards new ways to create these relations is to understand indigenous understandings of gender if there are even if you're even studying an indigenous culture that has a has a gendered system because not all did Mm -hmm. and that's kind of like the first steps in moving forward 
Now, you had said that you were interested in Marxist overview of trans history, the root of queer phobia, its connection to colonialism, general trends of resistance. And uh, then you wanted to talk about groups that were particularly explicitly queer groups um, that were doing good work um, today. But I'm wondering if that's how we want to sort of round it all off with. Is there stuff that you still wanted to say before we talk about that? Um, I think I'm pretty, pretty good on where I'm at with that. Okay. So before we talk about that, you know, talking about the groups that are doing really good work in, in terms of um, queer activism, what at the outset, like, just in terms of practices, cultural practices, norms, and praxis, what are the things that socialist and communist organizations need to do to be in solidarity with and in harmony with the efforts uh, and existence of their uh, of trans comrades. What what does a good organization do in terms of all of this? So, what a good organization does is thoroughly study feminist thought, especially feminist thought that links class struggle and women's struggle and non-men's struggle. And then um, with that also has to be a decolonial focus with that study. And these studies and focuses need to inform if it's an anarchist group, I don't know what they really refer to it as. just kind of the rules that they go by. Um, If it's like a communist party, then that needs to be a definite political line of the party and uh, how they can practice that can be done to further solidify the study for both anarchists and communists is to, to work in issues that are directly affecting um, trans people, indigenous people, black and brown people, and houseless people and sex workers, which there's a lot of bleed over in all those communities. And there needs to be an understanding that all those struggles are linked. So Praxis needs to be focused on aiding sex work and sex workers get workers rights and decriminalization of sex work housing whether it be helping homeless people especially homeless queer uh youth of color get housing or maintain their keep their housing if they do have it and building strong networks to further strengthen those rights, uh, prison abolition, 
prisons and police are by far the highest expression of local or domestic, I think would also be a good term, gendered uh, white supremacist violence. So the abolition of police and prisons is absolutely a must within leftist praxis in order to fight the the gendered violence of you know men and women's prisons that base the gender of um, incarcerated people on how they were assigned at birth the just inherent racism of the prison system and the police and along with that there needs to be mutual aid efforts that take into consideration more than just what normal ones do because like what normal mutual aid efforts do when it comes to like bringing food necessities of just survival and stuff like that the things that need to be taken into consideration is stuff like medication for trans people like uh hrt which then with the medication being brought into mutual aid efforts also brings in disability justice as well there needs to be struggles with the healthcare system to bring an understanding to healthcare providers or um clinics that gender affirming medical procedures and medications are not cosmetic they are not optional they are necessities for trans people the list just kind of goes on because all these issues are just one struggle and it's a lot to like kind of just condense it into like step-by-steps of what needs to be done but those are a few ideas as to methods and praxis that needs to be heavily focused on in order to further understand the way to help bring about trans liberation i agree that it becomes almost universal. I mean, there's so many different things and so many different facets of those things. And, you know, is, is, uh, and, and all of these things would help everyone as is so often the case with the Marxist project, right? What liberates one particular group of people tends to also liberate everyone. And it's sort of an injury to one is an injury to all. But some groups are better at that than others, both Marxist and non-Marxist groups. And I know that you wanted to talk also about what groups are doing a good job, you know, kind of who we should be emulating or, or, or following uh, along those lines. Absolutely. Um, groups that I personally pay a lot of attention, attention to who I do see not only bringing up class issues but break down the relationship between class issues issues and um gender issues race issues all these 
would be um, groups like Pink and Black. They are a prison abolitionist group that helps bring attention to causes of trans incarcerated people and will do various forms of prison mutual aid and abolition work. Um, other ones would include uh, the Autonomous Brown Berets. They are a Chicanics radical group that has chapters in major cities. They also fight against a lot of colonial outlets of violence, which includes patriarchy. They do a lot of mutual aid work and mass work. There's also Power Blossoms. They are a Southern California prison abolitionist group that I think is also really inspiring with some of the work that they do. There is uh, We Are the Ones Who Care. They are a mutual aid group for queer and non-binary people of color that do work in trying to get queer people the means they need to defend themselves, which that was another form of praxis I actually probably should have brought up was um, community defense and self-defense are major queer issues due to the fact that since most queer people are in some form of marginalized position. They are exposed to not only like slow systemic state violence, but also reactionary fascist violence that especially sex workers, they're at risk of physical violence from the police, physical violence from um, men, physical violence from anti-sex workers and the physical violence that bleeds from them bleeds into just queer people in general, just women and femmes in general. Um, And the more of these identities you have, not only is it harder to get by in the capitalist system, It's you run the risk of facing actual physical violence day in and day out and having the means to defend yourself, whether it be an actual um, firearm, whether you learn like hand to hand self-defense, whether it's with pepper spray, tasers, knives, just whatever that is important to get into the hands of the most marginalized. Cool. anything else that you want to add we can we can work it in Mm. all i really just uh gotta say is study indigenous history queer history and just hope for a better a better day and stay safe Uh, Jay Sakai's very important Settlers, the Mythology of the White Proletariat, 
I would preface this with by saying that I read it like um, through all the way a while ago. Um, I came at it with like generally agreeing with uh, most of its basic premises and and like having background and what it what it was talking about. But um, for this presentation, I, I sort of uh, had to skim through um, the first half. So with that in mind, uh, this was originally published in 18, uh, 1983 and has sort of become uh, a, like Matt said, a very important um, text uh, advancing maybe what we might think of as a Maoist third worldist sort of adjacent perspective um, and also kind of a meme in certain corners. Um, I just want to say up front that it's available for free online at readsettlers.org. Um, and in general, I'd say it seeks to provide a historical materialist account of um, whiteness and the white like working class, as it says up front, um, as uh, Sakai himself says, it's an account of Babylon itself, a reconnaissance into enemy territory, which is a reconnaissance into me being up front. I'm white and from a petty bourgeois or working class family. So um, I think that's important to say. Um, so uh, I, I definitely think you should all uh, check it out and read it since it's free. Um, and to be clear, I think there are some counterproductive, counterproductive readings of it, both positive and negative. Um, like on Tuesday, we briefly mentioned in our stream, Ingalls doing or describing what Lenin called bending the stick or simplifying or overstating an argument for tactical reasons because the stick's already bent in the wrong direction. And I think that's maybe the case in some instances here, but in general, I think we or the left or whoever um, don't take these arguments seriously enough. Um, so enough of my thoughts. Um, as to the text itself, it essentially describes um, the consolidation of whiteness in America, which is characteristically spelled with a K here, arguing that race uh, is a fundamental category through which class has historically been expressed and like taken shape as a historical process until the present and ongoing. That Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and non-white people in general have been <clears throat> um, constituted as like internal colonies um, in relation to white or Anglo-European settlers. Um, and so the crux of this is that uh, white workers, white bourgeoisie, white petty bourgeois people, um, our standard of living, our lifestyle, our cultural, our culture generalized um, has been uh, premised or um, has been sort of like subsidized by uh, the uh, value created by these internal colonies. Um, that even as workers whose uh, surplus, the surplus value we create 
is exploited, is stolen, we're still subsidized by super profits um, extracted by the main focus of this book is on Black people, Indigenous people, workers in America, but also it deals with imperialism, how value extracted by imperialism subsidizes our lifestyle. And it starts, uh, as it says, from the Mayflower, from, and in America, a large majority of Euro-American people, colonists, were bourgeois or petty bourgeois, what we think of today um, as those categories, like large plantation owners, farmers and merchants, smaller landowners, artisans and professionals. And some were uh, workers in the traditional sense, um, but either upwardly mobile, um, upwardly mobile, or there were definitely some abjectly poor hired laborers, but the majority were in this upper strata. And for Sakai, importance of the U.S., the uniqueness of the U.S. confluence of things that created the preconditions for, for whiteness as it currently exists to come together were the U.S. did not have a purely feudal past like uh, European nations. It was the first independent nation constituted by a colonial bourgeoisie, i.e. A, a bourgeoisie who extracted value from a proletariat of a, of a different national origin and the first to win independence in those conditions. The large majority of white people as we currently understand them were, uh, as Sakai says, bourgeoisified. The proletariat or creators of value were nearly exclusively colonized and enslaved peoples. This is sort of like starkly exemplified by the fact that Black people, enslaved people, Africans overwhelmingly sided and fought um, uh, with the British, uh, as in like one to t as in ten for every one in the Continental Army, and after the War of Independence or the quote unquote American Revolution. Um, escaped to British territory, or in some cases continued to wage guerrilla war. After the War of Independence, there was this obvious contradiction from that fact that slavery imported and concentrated, as Sakai says, a vast enemy army of oppressed right in the sinews of white society. And that was like totally apparent to the white bourgeoisie of the newly independent U.S., um, as demonstrated by the Haitian Revolution in 1791 and ongoing numerous rebellions and acts of resistance on the mainland U.S. Um, for the merchant and industrial bourgeoisie in the North, largely, um, this meant that a similarly vast army of European immigrants would be needed to colonize and hold and expand uh, US territory. For the Southern planter bourgeoisie, more whites merely meant a smaller share of colonial super profits. And that's obviously a sort of like overly cut and dried distinction. Like that's to ir illustrate this contradiction 
in the very fabric of U.S. society. Um, there were like this was expressed in both the North and South in different ways. But that's sort of the way he uh, frames it. And obviously, like the former did occur, large scale European immigration is one of the founding, like is the basis of the founding mythology of the, of the U.S. today. Um, we're a nation of immigrants um, and so on. And um, what was originally a relatively flexible and flat uh, class structure for Euro-Americans at least, definitely not for people who were enslaved or people who were colonized, had their land stolen. This class structure for whites became more rigid and hierarchical with this process of large-scale immigration. And for Sakai, um, the white working class um, ultimately constituted a labor aristocracy um, in Marxist terms. This doesn't mean it was not subject to poverty and exploitation, um, but throughout its history, despite outward militancy and popularity of radical ideals and some genuine revolutionary acts in solidarity with uh, the um, colonized peoples. As a whole, Jay Sakai says, was a privileged labor stratum with a largely reformist petty bourgeois consciousness prone to co-optation by bourgeois political factions willing to grant the quote, petty privileges derived from the loot of empire. Because of this, Sakai argues that trade union unity, a longstanding slogan of the left and an important one, um, has historically been in its concrete manifestations, a ruse, uh, quote, a ruse to divide, confuse, and stall the oppressed until uh, new genocidal attacks could be launched against us. Sakai is a uh, Japanese American, by the way, and uh, obviously there is a, a very real history of oppression of Japanese Americans and Asian Americans in general. Most of the book is concerns historical examples of this, and they tend to go against what we might traditionally think in our received working class histories. And they're certainly like up for discussion. The main thrust of his argument is that many early and even current unions and federations of labor explicitly in practice advocated the interests of white workers exclusively at the expense of colonized workers, despite any overtures they, have ma they may have made um, to the latter. Uh, so the what we would think of as like obviously reactionary, like more for you is less for us, like immigration hurts the white working class. Um, that was a very strong facet of much um, early labor organizing or the police or workers too, even though they like brutalize you and were explicitly created um, and have their history in uh, slave patrols and so on. So another uh, main focus of the book is how whiteness, quote unquote, um, the social construct came to be 
um, what we currently think of it as, um, how that was expanded and consolidated and made more rigid. And um, obviously that didn't always exist and definitely not always in the form we think of it today. Um, it took place through, it took shape through concrete historical processes. And for Sakai, uh, this was, uh, the main aspects of this were that Euro-American people in the US were, especially immigrants, were originally divided very sharply along lines of nationality. So Irish, Swedish, German, uh, Eastern European, Hungarian, so on. The upper strata of white workers or the white proletariat um, in general had a distinctly petty bourgeois and uh, distinctly petty bourgeois character and were almost exclusively quote-unquote native-born Americans. Many of the most exploited or newer immigrants from Europe were still afforded considerably higher wages and better conditions than they did or would have gotten in Europe. Um, this is made especially clear in the case of the Irish who like um, were subject to an intentional man-made starvation famine in their homeland and worked shitty jobs in the US, which is not to take away from their struggle in the US, but to say that like, there is a difference. Also, there wasn't really a class consciousness between these communities of immigrants. They were mostly, mostly divided along national lines or ethnic lines with their own like bourgeois leaders who advocated for them or pretended to. A couple more things before I go over to discussion. I think the concept of the labor aristocracy is an important one here, and Sakai uses it in maybe a more broad sense than uh, classical Marxists might. Um, but the important point is that being in favor of or wishing for a working class that's united in consciousness of the working class's historical role, the abolition of class itself, doesn't make it a reality. That's like the fact that the working class can abolish class itself is logical and actual history is historical. And it's our like job to understand not only the vagaries of the bourgeoisie exploiting us, but also the sources of real divisions between those who only have their labor power to sell. Sakai argues that the value of the labor power of white workers as a class um, in general is augmented by the super profits derived from exploitation of internal and external colonies and the spoils of imperialism. Engels, for example, originally had a very particular, um, had very particular sections of the English working class in mind when he applied this term, the labor aristocracy. Whereas Sakai would argue that the English working class as a whole saw an upward trend in wages and conditions under the British Empire, which were obviously contingent on class struggle, but also increasingly profitable colonies. 
I also want to be clear that uh, Sakai is not saying that race supersedes class, is more important than class, is more determinative, determinative of consciousness uh, than class. Um, there was and is, and he like frequently makes references to the black petty bourgeoisie, black capitalists, black opportunists and compradors. And he does mention genuinely revolutionary whites, but that he still recognizes that race has been a fundamental aspect of class from the beginnings of European colonization. Um, and I think that's all I have for now. That definitely um, touches on the major aspects of the book, I think, but we might come back to the second half of it later if there's interest. I had, maybe this will be good for a first question because I feel like it's maybe kind of superficial, but there might be a lot more to it. I was curious about the significance of um, how J. Sakai spells America with the letter K. And if I re remember right, um, followed a similar pattern like with the words Africa and maybe Canada. I remember uh, Googling and trying to get a clear understanding because I feel like when you read it, it makes sense. Um, like, I feel like I kind of internalized the reason, but not really um, made it clear in a way to explain to other people. Um, and I feel like if I were to attempt that, it would be to like trying to invoke um, the kind of the spirit of authoritarianism in what a lot of people might not um, connotatively think as authoritarianism. Am I close or what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I'm definitely not uh, the person for a, to give a conclusive answer on that. It sort of uh, kind of baffled me as well um, at first, but I would say that like there is a fairly long history of, um, well, like one of my favorite, um, one of the people who really opened my eyes to colonialism um, is a fairly standard uh, like writer on the subject, uh, Amy Cesare. Um, and Jay Sakai echoes this a lot, um, who, uh, Cesare sort of was famous for noting that Hitler, um, Adolf Hitler, was a quintessential sort of feature of European, like the things Hitler did were endemic and fundamental to European civilization. Um, recurring catastrophic man-made famines in India, which killed millions annually um, that the Herero and Nama genocide that King Leopold's, uh, Leopold's Congo. Um, these were like the Holocaust was sort of like a standard feature of life for people in the colonies in, in many cases. Um, and I think uh, 
I could be wrong or not capturing the the essence of why the K versus C, but I think that's sort of um, calling back to uh, like Germany had Germany was the the primary antagonist in the um, Herrero and Nama genocide, and I think the K sort of calls back to that, calls back to Hitler, while also indicting the West as a whole in that, and the US, which we think of as a democracy, but has carried out these horrible genocides and has excluded people from its body, body politic, etc. Okay, that kind of reminds me of, um, it seems like when conversations are had with people who get really defensive about the the sanctity of American democracy and um, either don't like or get really confused when we, we use words like fascist to describe American policy. Um, a sentiment I've heard is that like colonialism is when it's done to people abroad and fascism is when it's done at home. Right. And that, was- that might be a way to synthesize that idea with people who are like, well, when I read the definition of fascism, it's uh, what happened in Europe and starting in the 1920s and such. So it can't have, anything that happened before that can't have been fascism. You know? Yeah, people should definitely read a discourse on colonialism. Um, Amy Cesare makes that point very like in-depth, um, and that's exactly um, essentially what he says. I had a question concerning... Um, the maybe a comparison or contrast with the main takeaways, the main thesis of history is presented in settlers versus something like um, Howard Zinn's A People's History. Zinn is maybe a little less um, interested in drawing a distinction between the white working class and the colonized working class. Um, and I think like Sakai has a lot of examples there and Zinn has probably a lot of examples there that are like worthy of debate and investigation and discussion. Um, But that's really all I can say right now, I guess. I was thinking about how the framework presented here could be an illustration of how insufficient like social democracies or like Nordic model type states are in actually solving the the real problems that humanity faces with how we see that um, wealthy nations that are sometimes decried by right-wingers as socialists, for example, like Norway and Denmark, uh, simply for having policies that, you know, would provide uh, healthcare much more easily to its citizens and have arguably more effective criminal reform systems. But how the wealth of these nations is altogether built upon the exploitation of um, what we often call third world nations um, is that idea kind of like what's being talked about here in Settlers or my off base? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, um, I would say up front that um, I think, um, as I think we all agree, democracy 
real substantive democracy needs to be a, a cornerstone of socialism and that that's different than talking about um, Sweden. I'm not disagreeing with you, Derek, just proviso, but um, I think Sakai would, would probably fall in the Maoist tradition. And that doesn't necessarily mean that one has to be a Maoist to agree with everything um, he puts forward. Definitely not. But um, I think obviously like Sweden, um, maybe there's some like colonial-esque policies there with um, Swami or whatever. I don't know anything about Sweden, but it was a very different situation than the U.S. And I think um, there is also like the Nordic countries do a lot of exploitative business in Africa. They're, they like sell arms. Um, they are part of the world system. And I think um, Sakai would, would claim that his argument applies to them as well in a certain sense that they're, that they're like welfare, that their social programs are largely premised on participation and um, culpability in the sort of um, neocolonialist or capitalist or um, in that sort of process of super exploitation, definitely. Something that's kept coming back to me is I'm recalling a time in a political science class I did in college a professor um, in that field of studies, like very infatuated with like the American founding fathers and would shut down arguments about uh, the, the immorality of the early American colonists being involved with slavery by saying, well, you know, if we didn't make these compromises to keep slavery in the States, then we wouldn't have been able to unite as a separate country and that would have ended in recolonization by the British. Therefore, slavery was justified. I don't think this was a specifically a concept that was explored in what I've read so far in Settlers. I think it's interesting the the kind of mental gymnastics that people make to justify immoral systems. It's, I guess, as a white person, it has in the past been easy for me to be like, oh, well, you know, history is complicated. Things were different at the time. Like there had to be compromises that like they didn't know anything else or whatever. And I think a lot of that can be addressed by asking what, what about enslaved people? How did they, what about their histories? What about indigenous people's histories? How did they view things? Did they not like deserve some agency there and like, like Sakai and and others, uh, Gerald Horn um, point out that like for them, the British Empire was certainly no like no angel. No, it wasn't like um, a perfect good guy. But they sided with it overwhelmingly against us, against Americans, against American independence because the British Empire was making moves to abolish slavery, not for moral reasons, for like 
geopolitical reasons because the sugar islands in the Car Caribbean were like had a slave enslaved to uh, planter ratio that was just untenable and slave rebellions were um, a major threat more than uh, in mainland America. Why would it be a bad thing or a worse thing than American independence? Like, why'd that be worse than recolonization by the British? They're both awful, but um, the enslaved, the indigenous largely chose the British. That doesn't mean the British are, like I said, um, that doesn't mean that's like the end all be all, but um, I think it's important to view history from perspectives that are sort of contrary to your own. Uh, yeah, I guess like the perspective that a person's freedom might be more immediately important than like the taxes that they put on your tea or stamps or whatever. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to remind everybody that you can find more from us at patreon.com slash solidarity house. And if you like this content, you can support us there. You can find the book settlers at readsettlers.org. Um, you can also purchase it in various places. Um, but uh, the readsettlers.org site also has some really other some other really cool stuff multiple editions of the book but also pages with background material uh, discussions of the book uh, a bibliography interviews criticism and other things around settlers uh, and so visit readsettlers.org to learn more uh, about the book and to read the book